Welcome to the next in a series of Ask a Chair podcasts brought to you by SAEM Rams. Hi, everyone. This is Vitas Coralias from Northwestern University, and welcome to another edition of Ask a Chair. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Ben Sun at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Sun completed his medical education at Harvard University while also obtaining his Master of Public Policy at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. He then went on to complete his residency training at the Harvard-affiliated Emergency Medicine Residency, better known as the Hammer Program, and completed a fellowship in health services research through the UCLA Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Nationally, he's recognized for his expertise in the areas of patient safety, quality, and cost-effectiveness in healthcare, and he has served as the principal investigator on over 15 grants from the NIH, the AHRQ, the Department of Veteran Affairs, and private foundations. He now resides as the professor and chair of emergency medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. Hello, Dr. Sun, and thank you so much for joining us today. Glad to be here. So I noticed that you hold a, a master's in public policy. It seems to be a growing section of emergency medicine. What do you think the role of the emergency medicine physician is in the policy realm? How can medical students and residents have a special interest in this area get more involved? Well, this is an area that I've been interested in since I was in college. I had the opportunity to learn about health economics and healthcare markets as a junior in college. And it became very evident to me that we have an extremely dysfunctional healthcare system. I think most of the folks who are listening to this podcast are aware of the statistics of how our nation spends more per capita on healthcare than any other country in the world by a factor of at least two. And yet our outcomes are significantly worse across virtually every measure that you look at. So there's a gigantic opportunity to improve the delivery of care. And at the really core of that is healthcare policy. I had the opportunity to pursue a master's in public policy that was combined with my medical degree. And that was a great experience because I had the opportunity to not only learn about the theory behind healthcare policy, but also to be engaged in research in that area. I think as emergency physicians, we have really a frontline view of the impact of healthcare delivery and healthcare policy. So prior to the Affordable Care Act, we were really on the front lines of providing safety net care to indigent populations. Whenever there is a downturn in the economy and when people lose health insurance, I mean, we see that very directly in patients who otherwise can't access healthcare in other settings. And there's a rich tradition of emergency physicians being involved in healthcare. We currently have at least two emergency physicians in Congress, including one of my classmates from medical school, Raul Ruiz, who represents the Palm Desert District, who I believe is on his third or fourth term in Congress. The governor, one of the former governors of the state of Oregon, John Kitzhaber, who is the governor for four terms, is an emergency physician and really pioneered some of the very innovative healthcare experiments in Oregon that have become a model for how healthcare could be improved on and delivered for the rest of the country. So I think this is an area that merges very well with emergency medicine. Certainly, coming from a public health background, one of my favorite things uh, about emergency medicine was that you kind of feel that economic, political, and that social context of the neighborhood that you're practicing in on a day-to-day -day basis, depending on what's walking in through that door. And so. Uh, certainly seems like emergency medicine physicians kind of have a good pulse on that. 
So during COVID, I recently got involved in a project focusing on patient satisfaction during this COVID era. And I recognize your name as a frequent contributor to the literature in both patient safety and quality. How did you kind of stumble into this? Uh, that's a great question. And this occurred completely by accident. When I was a second year medical student, knowing that I wanted to learn more about health services research, I basically cold emailed five or six of the top healthcare policy researchers in the Boston area. And I basically said, look, I'm a, I'm a medical student. Um, I'm eager. I will provide free labor. And is there anywhere that I can help with whatever research that you're working on? Somewhat miraculously, every single person who I contacted responded to me. And there were some very, very interesting projects that I had the opportunity to be involved in, primarily having to do with managed care. Uh, I think most of the projects had something to do with managed care. But there was one project that was specifically focused on patient satisfaction in the emergency department. That was Troy Brennan and Helen Burston's group. Uh, they were the founders of the Quality Research Division at the Brigham Women's Hospital. And I just lucked out. Um, it turned out that Helen Burston had collected a vast amount of data on the quality and experience of emergency department visits. This was something that was sponsored by the Harvard University self-insurance program uh, as a way to identify ways to improve patient experience and safety. There had been many papers that have been published out of that data set, but the primary question, that is, what are the factors that drive patient satisfaction in the ED, had not actually been answered. And so I was basically tasked to answer that question. So that was a, a fantastic opportunity. That's wild. So essentially, your whole research niche would kind of took off from cold calling. Do you have any other advice for medical students, residents, or even junior faculty who are looking to build a research career, other than not being afraid to put your name out there and ask around to see if anybody's willing to have some help? So as a medical student, I am going to posit that any medical student is going to be able to find some kind of opportunity in their local environment, whether it be a faculty member within the School of Medicine or faculty members who are at affiliated schools, you know, for example, a school of policy, government, or public health. And that is a very low risk way of being involved in exploring this interest because really besides your time and effort, you really have nothing to lose. And it should be a win-win situation because you're offering your energy and your time uh, for free, presumably, to have the opportunity to work with somebody who's an expert in this area. I think in residency, because of the amount of time and energy that's required to become a good doctor, the opportunities to explore this interest become a little bit more limited. Now, if, if you're in a four-year program, you will have some elective time to further pursue this. And I had the opportunity, being in a four-year residency program, to further pursue my interests in health services research and healthcare policy. And the way that I explored that was to continue my work with the Brigham Quality Group with Helen Burstyn and Troy Brennan, as well as to work with one of the faculty at the Mass General Hospital, Carlos Camargo, who is a leader in our field for health services research. I think for junior faculty, for folks who are really serious about making this a part of their professional identity, I, I do think that an intermediate stop is necessary in the form of the fellowship program. The, the program that I personally went to, what used to be the Robert Wood Johnson Clinical Scholars Program, which has now been rebranded as the National Clinical Scholars Program, is one excellent example 
of how one can pursue further training in this area. Awesome. Thanks so much. I noticed that you were a professor with tenure at a different institution prior to taking the role of chair at the University of Pennsylvania. As trainees, so far in our careers, we've had these well-defined career transitions. We go from undergraduate to maybe something intermediately, but then med school, and then from med school to residency, and then residency to your first job. How did you know when it was time to kind of initiate these transitions as an attending physician who also has obligations to family and your career? What goes into knowing when to make those decisions and what kind of advice do you have for that? Yeah, that's a great question. And I I think you've really identified a major challenge, but an exciting challenge post-residency. Because as you said, your entire life from kindergarten up into the day that you graduate from residency, there's a very prescribed pathway. And the second that you finish your residency, you basically have an infinity number of opportunities that lie in front of you. Now, the majority of physicians will take a community job and focus on their clinical work and then have a separate life outside of that. And that's perfectly appropriate. But I think for those of us who are are interested in pursuing some additional academic work as part of our professional identities, it's really up to you to define what your career is. It's really up to you to have a very honest conversation with yourself and your family members about what will make you happy, what will keep you growing, what will keep you engaged in your profession. And so for me, one of the best pieces of advice that I heard when I was a a fellow and then a, a, a young junior faculty member, I was at a conference where there were maybe 10 leaders in academic medical centers, including two chairs of emergency medicine and maybe eight division chiefs of cardiology. And I sort of thought this would be a great opportunity for some career advice. So um, I sort of made my rounds and I asked, uh, what would you recommend for somebody in my stage of my development? And one universal piece of advice that I heard was to reevaluate where you are every five to seven years. And you may discover that you're perfectly happy doing what you're doing. But oftentimes you will discover that it's time for a new phase of evolution. And that may involve new training or change in your focus in in content area. It may involve a move uh, to a different geography. So when I've looked at my own history, that seven-year time frame matches almost exactly with what I've done in my life. I spent seven years at UCLA post-residency, seven years in Oregon, and I've just recently moved to Philadelphia. Interesting. Did you always see yourself eventually becoming a chair? Was that something that you aspired to? Or is that something that just kind of naturally progressed as you did these reassessments and kind of moved on to the next step of your career? Yeah, I had no idea that I wanted to do an administrative position like this until quite recently. I remember meeting with my boss just maybe four years ago during my annual academic review. And he asked me whether I had an interest in administrative leadership. And at the time, I had a very successful research program. And I responded to him, why would I do that? Why would I ruin my life? Because I was very much enjoying what I was doing at the time. But what happened was in the subsequent year, I started feeling that sensation that I, that I did need to evolve, that all the goals that I set for myself in becoming an independent research scientist, I had essentially met. And the thought of doing more of the same for the rest of my career seemed less and less appealing. I also had known since I was a fellow that at some point in my career, I would want to transition from studying to doing. 
although the exact vision of what that meant was not totally clear until very recently. You know, so some of the vague ideas were seeking a leadership position in a, in a department of public health, going to work for the government. Being a chair of a department had not really been at that top of the list. But what happened was I was contacted by a, a recruiting firm, and apparently my name had showed up on possible candidate list for a chair position. So my thought was that I had nothing to lose, that I potentially would have something to learn from the process. And then as I went through the process, I discovered that I was becoming pretty excited about putting together a vision and thinking about how one could progress emergency medicine as the leader of a large department at an academic medical center. So even though I didn't get the job at that first interview, that definitely caused me to go through a change in my thinking. And I did make a pivot and really focus on trying to acquire one of these jobs. And two years later, here I am. That's wild. That's the second time that you've mentioned kind of putting yourself out there with nothing to lose. I mean, when you call, call people for any research project and now when you got flagged for possibly being the chair of a department, it seems like a, a common theme that there, there needs to be a little bit of this attitude that you have nothing to lose and that you, you really do have to put yourself out there and be brave, if you will, to try and garner these opportunities. Is, is that right? It's really important to be open-minded. And, you know, my personal experience is that life-changing opportunities will come in very unexpected places. And so you just have to keep your eyes open. You have to be willing to take some risks. And then you have to be very honest with yourself about whether a position is a good fit or not. I've had some other very interesting opportunities come my way. Uh, you know, for example, being offered to lead a large research foundation. And when I look very carefully at you know, some of these other opportunities, for whatever reason, it just didn't feel like a good match. So I, I think in addition to keeping one's mind open, being willing to take some risk, but really, really being honest with yourself about what is important to you and whether there is a good fit between who you are and whatever position is being dangled in front of you. I think that all those things are really important. Very cool. Any other last advice or wisdom for our learners? We covered the, the major points. I mean, one is to really take ownership of your own growth and evolution. Nobody else will do it for you. I do think that it is incredibly rewarding to change, to learn. I think it is the most powerful protection against burnout. We did talk about the importance of reevaluating where you are every five to seven years, being open to new opportunities. And then probably most important is being true to yourself, really knowing what is important to you, what your value system is, what you're trying to accomplish through your professional life and making sure that whatever opportunity you decide to pursue is also consistent with what's important in your family life. That's fantastic. Thank you for taking so much time to chat with us today and allow our listeners to learn from kind of your experiences. Uh, it's certainly been motivating to me to remind myself that I have to be willing to put myself out there and feel like there's nothing to lose at times also. So thank you so much. It's been great fun. 